0: Hi, you handsome. Come to join the party.
1: Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we blow out the candles and accidentally drool all over the cake in front of our friends. So bring your push up bra and your backup dessert of choice, and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about intermittent reinforcement. Shout out to Joanna, a listener who suggested this topic. It's such an important part of our healing conversation, but I actually don't think it gets talked about enough. There's a great article on Thought Catalog. I mean, there are tons of great articles about this. You can find any, any one of them that you like, but the one that I kept going back to is called Intermittent Reinforcement, the Powerful Manipulation Method that Keeps You Trauma-Bonded, to your abuser. <laughs> so yeah, just casual, just no big deal, just a little thing that keeps you involved in abuse and or bullshit for years and years. So, let's talk a little bit about what intermittent reinforcement even is. In an abusive relationship, whether that's romantic or with a parent or a sibling, with a friend, a boss, whatever it is, It's a manipulation tactic the abusive person uses to keep you involved in the relationship for a long period of time, even though you're being abused the whole time. So I also want to say, I think this can expand beyond abuse per se. I think there are a lot of different ways it can look. A perfect example is when you're talking to a, like a fuck boy or a, you know, a fuck person. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with boy for convenience's sake. So you're talking to a fuck boy, let's say, and sometimes he leaves you on red for weeks. When he does respond, it's kind of lame. It's avoidant. It's a whole lot of nothing. But then every once in a while, he'll hit you up and you guys have a great time and you have sex and you get excited about where it might go. And then he disappears again and you have no idea when you'll hear from him and you feel dejected and shitty and bummed out. You know he's bad news and you know you should walk away, but you just can't. You feel addicted. You feel stuck in this loop that you can't get out of. Another way it might look is, for example, your dad is a huge dick. He puts you down. He makes fun of you. He yells at you over the smallest thing. But then he says one nice thing or out of nowhere, he says something about how hard his childhood was and how sad it makes him to think about his relationship with his dad or something like that. And that one nice thing or that one vulnerable moment makes you think, oh, poor guy, he really went through so much as a child or, oh, wow, see, he's not so bad. He told me I look nice today or whatever. And then, of course, there's a the classic example that's with a physically abusive person, you know, the person who shows up with flowers a few days after they physically abused you and maybe they cry and say how sorry they are that it happened and you get reinvolved because you feel bad for them or you think, oh, but they really do love me. And then it happens all over again a couple weeks later and you just can't leave. So here's a quote from that article on Thought Catalog that explains the science behind what's happening in these scenarios. It says, Psychologist B.F. Skinner, this is from 1956, discovered that while behavior is often influenced by rewards or punishment, there's a specific way rewards can be doled out that will cause that behavior to persist over long periods of time, causing that behavior to become less vulnerable to extinction. So let me T.O. to paraphrase this in context. In other words, there's a specific way they discovered that rewards can be given out, let's say in a relationship, that will keep a person involved in the relationship over a long period of time and make it less likely that they'll leave the relationship, right? Less vulnerable to extinction. That's essentially what that says. Okay, let's keep going. Consistent rewards for a certain behavior actually produce less of that behavior over time than an inconsistent schedule of rewards. He discovered that rats pressed a lever for food more steadily when they didn't know when the next food pellet was coming than when they always received the pellet after pressing the lever. So basically, I'm paraphrasing again, there's consistent reinforcement, which is every time the rat presses the lever, they get a treat. Every time your partner comes home, they bring you flowers, right? When we have consistent reinforcement, we're less likely to stay involved in a situation. When we don't know if we're going to get that positive reinforcement or not, because it's not consistent, AKA we're dealing with intermittent reinforcement. We're more likely to stay involved because it makes us feel like we did a good job reaping our hard earned reward or As the article says, quote, it causes us to work harder to sustain the toxic relationship because we desperately want to go back to the honeymoon phase of the abuse cycle, end quote, aka the times when the fuck boy took us out, the moments when our dad was nice to us, the times when our abusive partner was sorry and brought us flowers, keeps us involved because we're desperately trying to get back to that feeling. And we think it could come at any second if we just keep trying. To quote the article, intermittent reinforcement along with the effects of trauma ensure that we become addicted to the hope of reaping our reward despite evidence that we're risking our own safety and well-being. By the way, this is also how people get addicted to gambling. They want to feel like you know there's going to be a reward for all the hard work and money they've invested into winning so they keep playing even though they keep losing. And if you think about it, playing those slot machines and just like putting more money into it, more investment, more of you and what you have to offer into it. And and just like waiting and waiting and waiting for something good to happen. And it just keeps taking and taking and taking. That's a really good metaphor for sticking around abusive, you know, relationships or unavailable people hoping that something might change. And I won't go too deep into it, but there are actually biochemical reasons for this phenomenon that have to do with dopamine and our pleasure sensors. So here's another short quote from the article. When pleasure is predictable, our reward circuits become accustomed to it and our brain actually releases less dopamine over time when we're with a consistently good partner, end quote, which is so depressing to think about. Like for me, it feels scary because it feels like, How the fuck am I supposed to be stronger than the laws of dopamine? And then when you think about the patterns we were raised with, how our parents showed up, you know, good God, it's a real mess. So to help us get some clarity on this topic and figure out how we can interrupt this pattern, I'm so happy to welcome licensed therapist and yoga teacher turned elite embodiment coach, Sarah Snyder. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the pod. Hi, thank you so
0: much. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Oh,
1: yay. Well, I'm so happy to have yay. you on. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and to get us started, let's talk about your astrology a bit. You're a Libra, right? I am. That's a sign I love. I have a Libra moon, actually. So, Libra is the sign of justice, of fairness, of partnership and togetherness, right? of beauty and diplomacy. So I don't know if any of those words landed for you. But one thing I do think is so nice about having Libra in a therapist chart is that Libra rules the seventh house. And that's the house of one on one relationships, which makes a lot of sense with therapy and coaching because you're working one on one. Do you find that you thrive in one on one relationship dynamics? Or did any of those words hit home for you?
0: hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I am all about balance. I think Libras in general are all about balance. Yeah. And yeah, so much of what I do, I feel like is definitely the, the being able to be one-on-one, to be a helper, to be helpful to others. Um, I also really love groups though. That's, I, I run women's groups. And so I, I do really thrive in like a larger setting as well, but it's, I do feel like in my experience, I want everything to feel balanced, to feel aesthetically like beautiful and just really like warm and fuzzy and wonderful. (laughs) And that's why I am a good therapist.
1: (laughs) Yes. And that is absolutely like such a Libra trait to to want everything to be Mm -hmm. beautiful. I always was someone who would find a place on Craigslist and it was always someone else's place. And I would like rent a room. And then in the last couple of years, it kind of reversed where it was my place, and and other people were kind of renting it, sort of. But I, mm-hmm. I essentially was like, my time has come to decorate the fuck out of this house, and it was like such a liberating experience. It was like I went full Libra. I was just like beauty everywhere. I just want beauty. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. my gosh, you nailed you nailed it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to jump into my experience with intermittent reinforcement. While I do that, feel free to jump in with ideas, facts, repressed memories, you know, should any just happen to arise in the moment, or you can just hang out, color, check your bank account. Either way, I'll turn some questions over to you at the end. How does that sound? Sounds great. Awesome. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating.
0: Alda must not take yourself too seriously and...
1: Okay, here we go. So, intermittent reinforcement could be the name of my memoir. <laughs> like, it certainly was a huge part of how I was raised. Both my parents were really unpredictable. I never really knew what version of them I was going to get. With my mom, I felt a lot safer than with my dad, but part of that was because with my mom, you know, she would scream at us and be really scary and chaotic. But then, especially when we were little, not really when we got older, but but when we were little bitty, she would cry afterwards and tell us how sorry she was. So with my mom, it seemed like there was some kind of catharsis at the end of the chaos that felt like love. Of course, now I realize that that was actually really problematic. But at the time, it was such a relief to have that sense of, oh, everything's okay now, right? Like after the chaos of the verbal abuse. I remember one time when I was probably five or so, and my sister was seven, my mom found a grapefruit rind behind a dresser in the bedroom that my sister had left because kids are gross and they do shit like that. And she became totally irate. She was screaming and freaking out. And she was saying, if one of us didn't admit to it, we were both going to get spanked. And my sister, of course, because she was terrified, wouldn't admit to it. And I was completely beside myself. I was sobbing, just begging my mom not to hit me. And my mom just kept screaming at us and threatening us. And after like an hour of that going on and on, my sister finally in a flood of sobs admitted that she had left it there. And I I don't remember what happened to my sister. She probably got spanked. But I remember my mom very lovingly tucking me into bed after this, (laughs) you know, like after this absolutely terrifying moment. And telling me that she knew all along that it wasn't me and that I was such a good girl and she loved me and giving me a kiss. So there was a lot of that in my house, a lot of abuse and terror and chaos, followed by affection and soothing and telling me I was loved. But also there were times when we didn't get that at the end of a chaotic episode. So I never knew if I would get that love or not. I just knew that when I did get it, it was such a massive emotional relief. With my dad, there was none of that. My dad would blow up at us and be verbally abusive, but there was no catharsis afterwards. What there were, were these small moments when my dad wasn't mean or wasn't totally ignoring me, or when I got a glimpse into some of his vulnerability. So here's a great example. I mentioned part of this story on a recent episode. When I was 12, I flew out to stay with my dad for the summer. By the way, my toxic trait is throwing myself at toxic people and situations hoping this time will be different. (laughs) Something I got really good at in my relationship with my dad as a young lass. So if you're wondering why the fuck I was spending my summers with my dad, that is why. But also I had friends out there and I wanted to see them too. So anyway, I flew out there and it was business as usual. My dad was my dad. I tiptoed around him. I was people pleasing, you know, and trying not to get yelled at. And then a couple weeks into the trip, my dad went on a bender and didn't come home for like maybe five days or something, just out drinking and drugging and whatever he was doing. And when my mom got wind of it, that my dad had, you know, left us alone, basically. And by us, I mean, me and my little brother. She was like, you have to come home right now. I'm getting you a plane ticket. And I remember my dad calling me into his room after he'd sobered up from the whole binge thing and asking me if I wanted to leave. And as he asked me that his eyes were watering to this day, it's the only time I've ever seen him cry. And even then, you know, he was, he wasn't like crying, right. His eyes were tearing up. But anyway, I think I said, I didn't know if I wanted to leave or, you know, something like that because I was scared and I, I didn't know what to say, but those tiny waves of like, love or vulnerability or something that showed up in between the massive oceans of my dad's abusive, unacceptable behavior, I would cling to them for dear life and I would use them to justify having a relationship with him. I would think, yeah, but there was the one time when he did this, or like, I remember one time when I was 11, I'd gone out to visit him for the summer and it was the same old stuff. He would either ignore or scream at me. But this one time he was watering the lawn and I went outside and I was just standing next to him and kind of following him around while he was watering things. And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, wow, so many times I've wished you were there. And then I turn around and you are there. It was like the nicest thing my dad had ever said to me. And even though it was truly a needle in the haystack of my dad's abusive, mean behavior, I fucking cherished that moment. Oh my God. It was so meaningful to me. And even years later, when I would feel really conflicted about what to do in my relationship with my dad, I would think back on that moment and on the moment when he was like sort of crying and I would be like, no, see, he loves you. He's just really bad at showing it because his dad was abusive. Or I would be like, I would feel guilty, right? I would be like, Why am I thinking of of walking away from this relationship? Remember that one time? And it would keep me involved because at my core, I really, really, really wanted to believe that my dad loved me. Of course, of course, I wanted to believe that. So even though I could count moments like those on two hands in the entire span of my life, I stayed in relationship with my dad up until very recently recently. Rather than relying on the fact that there were very few of those moments to guide my decision-making, I clung to those moments as a kind of lifeline to give me hope that what I wanted to be true, that my dad really loved me and that, you know, things could change between us, that that was true, right? I do want to say, I don't think either of my parents were operating out of an intentional desire to hurt me per se, or an intentional desire to be abusive, I think both my parents learn toxic behaviors through their toxic experiences and subconsciously repeat, you know, what they know essentially, but that doesn't in any way make it okay. And so I want to say that I think there can be gray area when we think about this stuff. Yes. Some people are sadistic narcissists who get off on manipulating others. Obviously we don't want to be in relationship with those people, but I think there are also some people who will essentially engage in the same types of behaviors you see with narcissists or malignant narcissists, but they don't know they're doing it. That used to be my reason for getting re-involved with those people. Like, well, I can't really be mad at them because they're not doing it on purpose. They're just so wounded that they don't know a better way of showing up. I want to name that because I think it's a trap we get caught in. Whether someone is putting you through this chaotic cycle because they want to hurt you or because they can't help but hurt you, in my opinion, doesn't matter in the end because the result is the same. You get hurt and you are what matters. Your well being is what matters. Your safety is what matters. And either way, they can't provide safety for you, right? Emotional safety. So it's not about being mad at them necessarily. It's not about them at all, really. It's about being honest about what they're capable of so that you can really take care of you because you are what matters. So that's what childhood looked like for me. Let me talk for a minute about adulthood. I don't know if this is true because I'm not a mental health professional, but I can only assume that when you're raised around this dynamic, it feels very comfy and normal and easy when you grow up and someone's like, here it is again, same shit. And it makes it easier to get involved in these relationships, not because we like the way it feels, but literally because we don't know any better. I think people who had stable, consistently loving, predictable parents probably find someone who intermittently reinforces pretty uncomfortable and unpleasant to be in relationship with. Whereas for those of us who grew up with it, we're like, yeah, this checks out. This makes sense. This is how love works. And we get more and more deeply involved with those people. Also, let's not forget that this is about feeling like we're being rewarded for hard work, like the article talked about. If you grew up feeling like you had to work hard to earn love rather than feeling like getting love easily and naturally is just how life works, it would make sense to me that you would more easily fall into this cycle with your partners or friends or bosses because you're already wired for it. So, I mean, I don't have to explain to any of you what it looks like to get involved with an avoidant fuck boy or fuck person. We all know the pattern. We all know how it works and what it looks like desperately waiting for a text back waiting and hoping they'll give you the time of day, blah, blah. We've all been there for me. My dating record has been a real mixed bag. I've dated a lot of men who fall into this category and I've dated a couple of men who've been consistent and kind. And I've dated a few who've been somewhere in between, but I'll name this story here. Not because I think the way the guy showed up was particularly fascinating, but the reaction I had was really interesting especially when we think about it in terms of how we get addicted to inconsistency. So this guy wasn't abusive and he also wasn't inconsistent in the sense that he would leave me on red. He actually texted me every day, but he was inconsistent in other ways. And that's where things went awry. I had known this guy for years, but only through friends at parties and stuff like that. He'd tried to date me years before and I kind of blew him off. But fast forward a few years, he hits me up again. And I was like, sure, why not? So we start talking and he comes in hot and heavy. He's like, hey, I know you live in Arizona. He lives in LA. I know you live in Arizona. I just bought this badass adventure truck so that I could go on these epic road trips. And I want to come get you and take you on a road trip through the Southwest and Mexico. And I was like, "Uh, yes, please. I'm a Sagittarius. You are absolutely speaking my language. You're friends with people I know. So I know you're not a serial killer. Like, let's fucking do it. So for the two months leading up to this trip, we're texting every day. And it's mostly like memes and whatever, pictures of my cat, pictures of his dog, whatever, talking about music we like and embarrassing teen memories or whatever. All of that makes sense to me, though. Because we're still kind of getting to know each other. We're not like going deep into, you know, any heavy conversations. We go on this epic road trip that lasted 10 days, stretching through Christmas and New Year's, just the two of us. And I was like, whoa, this guy really likes me, right? He wants to spend the holidays with me. He's paying for this whole trip. It's just the two of us on this adventure. Definitely feels like we're heading in a dating direction. We have a great trip for the most part. He drops me off in Arizona, gets back to L.A., tells me he misses me. I mean, he was too avoidant to use those words, (laughs) but he said it without saying it and then goes back to texting me memes or screenshots of the Facebook group he joined so he could make fun of it or videos of adorable hedgehogs dressed up like firemen or whatever the fuck. I don't know. There's a lot of crazy hedgehog content out there, whatever, just basically a bunch of meaningless stuff. And I was really confused because we'd done this intimate trip. I mean, I say intimate, but this guy didn't like to cuddle after sex and was pretty emotionally unavailable. But there were these small intermittent moments when he would confide in me about something really painful in his life or when we were having passionate sex or when he would sweetly share his food with me and we were connecting. And then it was just gone after he got back to L.A., So I tried to have a conversation with him about it so that we could get on the same page about what our situation was. Like, I I was like, what are we doing? Are we dating? Are we like, what's, what is this? And he kept avoiding it. I kept texting him to ask if he would talk to me on the phone. I just reached out and called him once I sent him a voice memo, just being like, Hey, I'd love to talk, like really talk when you have a minute. He just wouldn't call me back or respond. I mean, he would send me a meme seven hours later, but he would have never acknowledged my attempts to connect. I wanted to use this example because I think intermittent reinforcement can look different ways. In the example I'm using, he wasn't sprinkling a couple nice or vulnerable moments on top of a sea of abuse, right? He sprinkled a very small bit of intimacy on a sea of fluff and sort of surface bullshit, right? Just memes and whatever. But I wanted the intimacy. And even though I didn't come back from that trip being like, holy shit, I'm so excited about this guy. I was hooked because I'd already invested months of talking to him leading up to the trip and then a whole ass trip to Mexico and sex, which is intimate. And I'm not someone who has sex very often. Plus, I'd gotten these glimpses of closeness with him, these glimpses of intimacy, right? And I wanted intimacy. I wanted that. At that point, I'd had enough healing to know what the healthy choice looked like, but I hadn't had enough healing to want the healthy choice. Do you know what I mean? Like where you do what you're supposed to do, but it doesn't feel good at all. And you're like, not emotionally like committed to it. So I asked him not to text me. I muted his stories on Insta. I muted him on Facebook and I took that big step back. But in the back of my mind, I was like, how do I make this work? How do I get back to that intimacy that we had for that short, tiny moment? Of course, I wasn't consciously having that thought, but I was energetically still thinking about him all the time, still heartbroken over the situation, still longing, still emotionally involved. So a couple months later, I texted him, of course, because I was addicted to the situation. And we start talking again. I unmute all his shit. I'm back in it a hundred percent. And then a couple of months after that, I'm a mess again. I feel like shit. I'm so upset. I can't get what I want. I can't get him to connect with me. And I was having to face a moment of being like, do I just like take that big leap and block him on everything because I can't trust myself? Do I delete his number because I can't be trusted? And as I was having to make this decision, I had a therapy appointment And I remember crying and telling my therapist totally like in earnest saying, I think I have to have someone who ignores me to some extent, because that's how I stay interested. That's how I stay passionate. I was basically so addicted to the situation. And by the way, the sex, it's not, it wasn't the sex. The sex was fine. It was like, whatever. So it wasn't like, you know, I think a lot of people like, but was it the sex? It was not. I was so addicted to that inconsistency that I was trying to convince myself that actually that inconsistency was exactly what I needed to be in a relationship. Like that's where my mind was. I mean, can I
0: chime in for a second? Yes. So yeah. Well, first of all, I personally relate to so much of what you're sharing. I myself had many, many, many of those kinds of relationships. The Push, pull, up, down, codependent, super unhealthy um, situation. And, you know, I had to go through my own sort of healing journey and my own work with my own therapist um, to get to a point where I could recognize those patterns. But what I wanted to just point out, I mean, so much of what you're describing. So just to back up for a second, like, I think we all want to feel seen, heard, loved, and valued. It's just like a basic human need right? And when you grow up or when we grow up in these situations where we are not consistently receiving that, we're not receiving consistent love, responding, um, attention, affection, we only get it in these like bursts or these moments, right? We see that as normal. We believe that that is normal. And so we think that's what love looks like. But that's not what that's not what healthy love looks like, right? And so it makes sense to me that you, what you're saying of like, I thought that I needed someone inconsistent. Well, sure. Cause that's what you grew up with. Right. And so it comes back to really like attachment theory, um, which I can go into if you want me to, but you know, I think so much of what you're describing has to do with those early attachments.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I, I think I do have a question in there about anxious attachment, but do you think there's something else about attachment theory that you wanted to add?
0: I think it's all connected. Yeah, there's different like layers to this, but I think what you were saying about being like addicted almost to that unpredictability and that inconsistency, I, I think that's just because that's what we grew up with, and so what we tend to do is we tend to recreate. I, I don't know if you'd say like the circumstances, but we tend to recreate relationships that sort of mimic what we grew up with. Yeah, right? in our in our adult relationships. Yeah, actually, a really helpful way that I have, I, I talked to my clients is um, helping them to just sort of understand the concept of like your adaptive child, your inner child, right? Which is the part of you that was just trying to survive. That was just, that's like that inner child part of you that just was trying to like get that love and validation when we don't receive that, we grow up thinking that's normal, thinking that's what love looks like. But as we go through our own sort of healing process and journey, and we develop into that more functional kind of adult self, we then can look back and can recognize, whoa, those patterns were really unhealthy, right? And, and so when that part of us comes up, that very like, um, addicted, clingy, um, codependent part of us, we can recognize that's my adaptive child self that's kind of kicking in. And so building awareness of that helps us to then like be able to be more in our functional adult self that can say, hold on, that is not healthy for me.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's perfect to point out because I feel like in this part of the story, those two parts of me, were like, I don't even want to say at odds, but it was sort of like they were, it's not like one was against the other, but they were just competing to have their needs met. Mm -hmm. And so like the child was like, no, listen to me. Like I need this. Yeah. And the adult was like, yeah, I know. But, and, and they, and I couldn't get, I like the adult part wasn't quite healed enough to where I could feel good about, about what I knew was true. Right. And so I just, kind of kept slipping back. I want to name that because I feel like in these healing journeys, we don't go, it's not like the moment you learn about this, you've switched, you know, like a light switch goes off and then it's like, oh, this is, I'm done because now I understand how it works. No, there's a process where like, you know what the healthy thing is, but you just can't, it's like, you're just not quite there. So I guess I want to validate that in this story Mm -hmm. Because that's where I was. Thank you so much for that piece. Cause that's really helpful. It's also, it's hard to override our biology,
0: right? So like going back to the dopamine piece, I mean, it's why any kind of addiction doesn't matter whether we're talking about gambling or sex or relationships or food or whatever it is, like we could become addicted to anything because that dopamine hit that release is so strong. We're, I mean, we are beings that thrive on pleasure. We seek pleasure and avoid pain, right? So I think that's just what it boils down to.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for adding that piece. Cause I think that's so clear and so helpful. So, yeah, so I, so I, I was saying this to my therapist, like so, totally straight face. <laughs> it's like, it, I must've literally been like trying to, you know, talk a drug addict out of her fix or something. <laughs> Luckily I did finally block him and we stopped talking, but when I did it, I fucking sobbed you know, like your girl was bereft because now I was getting off the ride. There was no rush of wondering, you know, what was next? What's around the corner? Is he going to text me? You know, is he going to take me on another trip? Is he going to break down one day and realize he wants to date me? Right. There was no, rush of seeing his name show up on my phone and knowing he'd been thinking about me and wondering if maybe this was the time that he'd realized he wanted to take things to the next level, right? And even though I never felt super connected to this guy and even though the sex was fine, but not great and even though it never felt like a match I was a wreck letting it go. Was I a wreck letting go of dudes who had been all about me uh, who I also was kind of like, man, whatever. No, I can tell you that right now. The inconsistency was what created that sense of addiction. Of course, the question is, how do we heal from this? For me, I think there are two ways of thinking about healing in my journey. There's, what do I do when I'm in one of these, you know, intermittently reinforced relationships? And then there's, what if I'm not in one of those necessarily, but I know I'm susceptible to those? And I think those are two different questions, or they have been for me. So... If you're in one of those relationships, the only way to heal that I know of is to just cold turkey that shit and get out. If you have to block them, have to delete their number, move to a new city, which I also once did, whatever it takes to get off the ride, but you do have to get off the ride and it sucks. But in my experience, it's the only way to get out of that toxic cycle. That little piece of healing wisdom is not groundbreaking right? I think it's pretty obvious, but I will tell you when you're hooked and someone tells you that it sounds like a crazy person talking in some language you've never heard before. Like you don't understand it because every ounce of your being is fighting it. It's like, there's got to be a way. And I'm here to tell you, there's not a way, my friend, the only way is out or anyway, that was my experience. Maybe, maybe there's a way if that person is super committed to therapy, potentially, but otherwise I just can't think of another way. But honestly, I think the real question in all of this is how do we heal the part of us that's set up to get trapped in this cycle? Right. Cause like, maybe you're not seeing anyone right now. So you're like, this is fine. Everything's fine. I don't have, I don't have a problem with this, but the second that it shows up, you're just back in it. Right. There's that part of us that feels like we have to work hard to earn love and the part of us that thinks that love is scarce, right? So we have to latch on when we find a glimmer of it or the part of us that thinks it's normal to be abused or ignored or treated inconsistently. That's the real question as far as I'm concerned. And of course, the answer is self-love, which is just kind of a bullshit nebulous term that means nothing when you grew up around abuse. But let me name a couple things that I think can fall under that category of self-love that are more meaningful. There's a lot we could talk about here. But for me, I'll say that the biggest one is getting used to the idea that if you're in chronic emotional pain in a relationship, that's not okay. Just really, really letting that become an indisputable fact for you. And when you catch yourself making excuses for why it's okay that this hurts, being able to catch that and be like, oh, I'm doing the thing. I'm going to make a different choice this time because it's never okay for me to be in a relationship that is chronically painful. That's one piece of it. You don't deserve pain, but maybe more to the point, you deserve to feel emotionally safe and you deserve to be celebrated. And you deserve to be cherished. Self-love as a term, I think is kind of meaningless. And I think a lot of us hear it and we think like, oh, facials, bubble baths, like, you know, a nap, which like, sure, sure. Okay. But what I'm talking about is loving yourself enough to decide that you will do the hard, painful work of walking away from situations that can't give you what you deserve, even though it hurts even though we crave it, even though it feels like we're going to die sometimes doing that hard work, because we know we matter. We know our pain matters. We decide that and we take action based on the knowledge that this is self-evident. We don't have to argue to make it true that we matter. It's just true. We matter because we're here and we all need each other and we all offer something period. In the last episode that I did on weaponized guilt, I talked about the affirmations my therapist had me do every night for months that were like, I matter. My feelings matter. I deserve reciprocity in relationships. I deserve people who are as generous with me as I am with them. She had me saying that to myself every night, and it truly changed my life, which is weird because I never was a huge fan of affirmations but these really worked for me because they didn't feel like bullshit affirmations that are like I'm rich I own a yacht (laughs) like those have never worked for me because I know they're not true I'm like I truly do not own a yacht but there's no lie in I matter there's no lie in I deserve to get back the generosity that I give so that's one tangible thing that you can try if Intermittent reinforcement is a pattern in your relationships. But I'll end with this. I was recently talking to a friend about a situationship I was in. And I was saying, we don't want to leave those situations because we have faith in scarcity. Of course, we have faith in scarcity. Like I was raised with a dad who could barely eke out a single nice thing to say to me, his sweet, innocent, loving child who just like kept showing up on his doorstep being like, please love me, right? When that's our reality, of course we grow up thinking love is scarce. We become adults and think, there's no way I'll be able to find someone else, right? I have to figure out a way to make this situation work. But the situationship or the abusive relationship or the abusive boss or the shitty friend, whatever it is, that is the scarcity, The scarcity is already there. When we leave the situation, we leave the scarcity. Our faith in scarcity is what led us to the situationship in the first place. Leaving it is the physical act of faith in abundance and faith in our worth and faith in the understanding that we matter, period. And that even if it takes a while before we have another type of connection, we're worth that. We're worth doing that. I think there are a lot of other things we could talk about on this subject in terms of how we heal this. But from my end, I'll leave it there for now. Sarah, how are you doing over there?
0: I'm good. I mean, I really appreciate your stories. I mean, to be totally honest, I hear this so, so often because I specialize working with women, um, both in my therapy practice and in my coaching practice. And so I really do see so many women stuck in these really unhealthy relationships where they're being intermittently reinforced, and they just don't quite see how unhealthy it is. But to me, a lot of that comes back to again, it's like the the childhood, it comes back to how we grew up. And so when it comes to like the healing piece, I think we have to start back in childhood.
1: Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because my first question is around anxious attachment. So yeah, So I'll read my question, but then I'll kind of say something. So my question was, can you talk about the relationship between anxious attachment and intermittent reinforcement in relationships? Mm -hmm. And do you think that people who are anxiously attached are set up to be more susceptible to these types of relationships as adults? And, and yeah, like this is a perfect lead in because I have really struggled with anxious attachment. And I think a lot of my listeners have, and Yeah, I would. And that is absolutely like kind of what I was talking about with my parents and how they were so unpredictable. So, yeah. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. So I think first, let's just talk about attachment theory is this basically this concept that if we grow up with parents that are sensitive and caring and consistently responsive as infants as children then we learn that the world is safe and predictable we learn to trust the adults in our life we learn to um to feel safe basically and so we develop a secure attachment if we have the opposite experience where we have caregivers that are just inconsistently responding to us, whether that be abusive or just not responsive. They just don't respond when as an infant we cry or as a child, we need something or as whatever it is, like they're just not giving us that love, that validation, that attention, the care, you know, that we need, then we start to develop a lack of trust in the world around us. We feel like the world is somewhat unsafe and unpredictable. And so we know it's like, we don't quite know what we're going to get. Right. And so that's where what tends to happen is kids who don't understand what's going on, start to feel unworthy. They start to feel like, did I do something wrong? Is it me? They start to question. Right. And that's where we can develop these insecure attachments. And so there have been all kinds of studies done and research around different types of insecure attachment. But basically what you're talking about when you say I was anxiously attached is that you developed an anxious attachment style, right? And an anxious attachment style is basically where it's like, we have this really intense fear of being abandoned, of being rejected, because growing up, we felt often like we never knew what we were going to get. We never knew who was going to show up. Were we going to get the caring parent, the loving parent, or were we going to get The parent who was preoccupied, was busy, was, you know, um, angry, was abusive, whatever it is. And so we never really knew. And so what tends to happen is like kids develop this sort of anxious, ambivalent attachment where they just don't feel like the world is safe and they feel anxious a lot um, because they never know what they're going to get. And so I think what happens then is there is a strong correlation and there have actually been tons of studies that have looked at the relationship between anxious attachment and intermittent reinforcement, and what they found is that it's 100% accurate. An anxiously attached individual is significantly more likely. Um, it's a, it's a risk factor really for developing or for being a survivor of domestic violence because we tend to, if you think about, you know, if we if we have this insecure attachment, we tend to have sort of poor emotional regulation, meaning that because we never know what we can what we're going to get, our emotions are all over the place. So we might get really, really sad in one moment, really, really angry in another moment. We have no control over our emotional experience because we never learned that from our caregivers. They never soothed us and therefore we never learned how to soothe ourselves. Or if we did, it was inconsistent, right? It was unpredictable. And so as a result, we tend to almost seek those relationships that, like I was saying, mimic what we grew up with because it's familiar and it seemed normal. And so that's what we think love looks like until we realize that's not what love looks like. Right. And so there, there's actually a lot of studies that show that having an anxious attachment style is a risk factor for being in a relationship where there's this intermittent reinforcement. It's, it's wild actually.
1: It makes so much sense. I mean, it makes so much sense. Totally. Yeah. Cause it's like, yeah, you were essentially being intermittently reinforced as a kid. So then you grow Mm -hmm. up and like when someone does it also, I know for me, it was a feeling of like, I want to prove my worth. That's how I felt in my relationship with my dad. I have to prove to you. And it was like, maybe if I, I was like the overachiever in the family who was like, yeah, I was captain of the dance team and I was in all the AP and honors classes and I was the class president and like all of the things, because I kept thinking that my dad at some point would fucking turn around and look at me and be like, wow, you're amazing. And like, nothing worked. And that Mm -hmm. pattern, I brought it into my relationships with men where I was like, look how sexy I am. Look at how smart I am. Look at how talented I am. Look at me, look at me. Right. And like, And still I would, I would just end up with these same situations over and over again. And yeah, I think it makes perfect sense that we just kind (laughs) of do the same shit. Yeah. Like, of course, until we step in and go like, wait, we can't, we just can't keep doing this. Yeah. Let me ask this. So this was, this is the thing that like, I never in all of the things that I read about this, I never saw anyone addressing this. So I think one of the big tricks for me when I'm thinking about intermittent reinforcement is that we're taught to be compassionate, loving people, right? Like we're just supposed to be good humans, right? Or maybe we're, we have a spiritual practice where they teach us that. And I think also particularly as women, we're sort of like groomed to just always be loving and compassionate and understanding, right? When someone is abusive and then they show a moment of vulnerability or they're kind to us or they say they're sorry, whatever it is, what happens for me is that I want to respond in a way that shows them compassion and understanding. Right? I jump right back into that. Mm-hmm. When we're compassionate, loving people, how do we navigate those moments when an abusive or unavailable person offers that little piece of intermittent reinforcement? And our knee-jerk reaction is to console or soothe or res- like respond with love and-, and essentially get reinvolved with the person.
0: Yeah. So you are describing almost every woman in my practice who struggles with similar because this is the thing that I've seen so many of these women and and I have to say like I say these women but like I was one of these women. I you you are describing you were one of these women. Like this is very common that when we do grow up with that sort of inconsistent responding, right? We feel like we have to work for it. We feel like we have to earn it. So we overdo everything. We learn to overgive. We learn to overcommit. We overlove, right? And and that's what codependency is. Codependency is overloving. It's loving too much, essentially, right? Where we make our whole world that person. And we stop, we sort of lose ourself because we're so just like, enmeshed with that person. And so what you're describing of like, what do I do because it's, you know, it's like this person is being compassionate or being vulnerable. Well, of course, like we're wired for connection. So it makes sense that you, in a moment where they are showing this like opening that you're gonna take that moment of connection, right? Because connection, one, releases dopamine, two, oxytocin, three, like it just, it, it feels good, right? And so we want more of what feels good. The problem is that it's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. And so what we have to learn essentially is that just because something feels good or just because we think that we're being kind in that moment of showing compassion to that person in their moment of vulnerability, that's taking care of them, not us. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn to put our needs ahead of their needs, which so many women struggle with because of that kind of bullshit, good girl conditioning that we're all sort of raised with, we have to learn that it's not selfish to put your needs first. It is incredibly healthy and really essential. And so honestly, like some of the best advice that I ever got from my own therapist was when I was in an unhealthy relationship, she said to me, Sarah, you can love him and you can let him go. Like you can love him and choose not to be with him. And that is actually the best thing for you. And it's the best thing for him. And it was, and it truly was, you know, so like learning the thing that a lot of codependents don't realize is that when we, because we grew up with these sort of enmeshed boundaries where there are no boundaries, essentially, we don't learn how to set healthy boundaries. So what we have to learn is how to say, no, thank you. That's not good for me. That's, That's it in a nutshell.
1: Uh, And I just want to name for people that if you haven't, first of all, I have an episode on boundaries, if if that's something you're really struggling with. But also, again, it's not one of those things where you're going to be like, oh, I just was told that I'm being codependent. I need to have boundaries. Okay. There's going to be a struggle, (laughs) like getting to the point where you're like, Mm -hmm. this actually feels good for me to put this boundary in place. It takes, it takes a lot. It takes a while. So don't be frustrated with yourself if it forever, (laughs) seemingly feels like so uncomfortable to do, or so like maybe makes you feel guilty or whatever it is. You will get there, but there is that in between phase, right? right? Let me ask this. If we received intermittent reinforcement from parents as children, how does that affect the kinds of relationships we seek as adults? I mean, we've kind of talked about this, but even, even if it's like with bosses, with um, friends, yeah. you know? Well, we, I
0: think we over-accommodate. That's what I, that's what I, no, I did. That's what I see among the women um, is that we over-accommodate. We also put this pressure on ourselves to like show up as like these perfect people who were, no one is perfect, right? And so I see like there's a big overlap and um, congruency between like perfectionism, people-pleasing, codependency. They kind of all go hand in hand because- when there's one behavior, there tends to be others. But those, but the reason is because those behaviors are rooted in these beliefs that we're unworthy, that we have to earn love, that whatever it is, like the, the, we have a lot of limiting beliefs that we have to work through. So I think it plays out in these relationships where we over tolerate and over accommodate other people and put them before us, right? And we don't speak up for ourselves; we stay silent. So that whole good girl conditioning, right? And so we really have to learn how to like, step into our power. But first, in order to do that, we have to like, actually identify the pattern for ourselves, identify the limiting beliefs for ourselves. because the first step towards changing any kind of thought or behavior is awareness, right? So we have to first become aware of it before we can change it. And the other piece, kind of speaking to what you were just saying is that, you know, when we grow up with these patterns, it becomes like, literally, that is how our nervous system becomes wired. So we have to rewire our nervous system to respond differently. And that takes time. It's not an overnight process, right? So yes, you may have an aha moment working with a therapist or with a coach, but it's going to take time to put those like new learnings into practice. And that's because our, our nervous system has to rewire itself so that we're not responding from a place of fear and survival and all the things that we
1: did growing up. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh my God. It makes yeah. Perfect sense. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Which brings me to this. And I'm so glad that you brought in the nervous system because I know that's something mm-hmm. that you work with as um, in your therapy and also as a yoga instructor. So my question is, how do we heal from the addictive cycles of intermittent reinforcement? Like, what are the specific steps that we can take, or like therapy routes we can work with to get out of this loop and heal our nervous systems? Yeah. So I think the thing that most people don't realize is
0: that in order to heal these patterns, you do have to heal your nervous system and rewire it, right? And so I am a full-time therapist. I wholeheartedly believe in therapy and working with a therapist, well, I should say working with a trained, like effective therapist, specifically like cognitive behavioral therapist, CBT, or, and, or dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, because I think both of those approaches help to get at the unhealthy limiting kind of thoughts and behaviors that are there and teach some like specific self-compassion practices and things that can help you on your journey. To be totally honest though, I know my training as a therapist, like I didn't learn how to heal the nervous system as part of my training back when I did my, got my LCSW, what I have since learned through my yoga teacher training through just years of, of various somatic practices and, and various trainings is that you really have to, I mean, there's different approaches, right? You have So there's one approach, the therapy approach is sort of top down. It's like we're, we use this talk therapy approach to go from sort of rewiring the brain, which then uh, impacts the body, but so much trauma is stored in the body, right? And so what we sort of alternative approaches are more bottom up approaches to healing, where we actually are addressing what's going on within the body first, and then we can actually move up to the brain and use more like cognitive processing. And so that those would be if you're talking about therapy, those would be therapists who do like EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or brain spotting, which are really effective for trauma. And with that said, and again, I really support that work. I just have found that so many women benefit from just like a holistic approach to, to healing. So what that looks like, Is And I've developed basically what I call my embodied paradise method. I live here in Hawaii. And so the whole idea is that we actually have to learn how to embody the healing vibes, we got to embody paradise, which means that we actually have to learn how to quiet that sympathetic nervous system that goes into fight or flight that kind of that like fear response, that survival response, that part of us that Sort of the knee jerk responses we don't think about, we have to learn how to quiet that and access the opposite part of the nervous system, which is our parasympathetic, the rest and digest response. And this is totally accessible. We just have to learn how to access it. And the way to access it is really through your vagus nerve. So I don't know if you've done, I mean, this could be like a whole topic and a whole hour itself is learning about the vagus nerve, but basically, The vagus nerve runs um, through the body, through the diaphragm. And what happens as we take really deep, long, slow, specifically exhalation breaths, the diaphragm expands and releases essentially, which stimulates this nerve, sending a message to the brain to basically like slow down the fight or flight. It's kind of like stepping on that the breaks kind of of our body so that we can activate the parasympathetic, the rest and digest. So as we learn to stimulate the vagus nerve in all these different ways, we build what's called vagal tone and we start to actually heal the body from this like dysregulated place that it, it gets stuck in, right? When we get overly reactive, when we're constantly putting other people's needs before our own, when we're constantly over giving, overdoing, over committing, all those things that perfectionists and codependents do, we have to learn how to rewire our body. So my embodied paradise method starts with that. It starts with, I call it create your own personal paradise really through like these somatic soothing strategies. So it's kind of like retraining your nervous system, what you didn't learn growing up. Does that make sense? Like how to calm itself. Mm-hmm. And then once we've addressed the body, because once the body feels safe, then we can actually address the limiting beliefs that are more like in the mind. And we can use more of these cognitive reprocessing processes. So I, I call it conscious reframing. Basically, it's sort of learning how to be mindful. So using mindfulness um, and metacognition with sort of this like Non judgment, and that's a piece that I think a lot of women struggle with. We're so harsh on ourselves. We're so hard and judgmental of ourselves, right? So if we can learn how to build awareness of our thoughts without judging ourselves for it, we can start to actually make changes to that thinking that's really unhealthy. So there's many ways to do that. I teach actually affirmations are one. I came out. I know it's funny because you were talking about self love and how it feels kind of like this intangible idea. I came out with literally these radical self-love affirmation cards because I was saying the same thing to all my clients over and over again. And I was like, I'm going to put these into cards. (laughs) And that's exactly what I did. And so many women have been like, this is so helpful because it's repatterning. That literally is what we do is repattern some of that unhealthy thinking. And then the last piece, so I, again, it's a holistic. So we're taking like a mind, a body, mind, spirit approach. The last piece is we have to sort of connect to what I call the elite self, meaning like, if you think of who we are as almost like a coconut, which is kind of rough and hard around the edges, right? When we crack it open, we can access more of that like juicy, cool, calm, like that part of us that actually is rejuvenated, that actually is where all the meaty goodness is. That's the part of us that we get disconnected from when we're in these intermittent unhealthy relationships right when we're being intermittently reinforced we lose ourselves. we lose connection to what makes us feel good to what brings us joy and so we have to like reconnect to that part of ourselves and i call this sort of my elite embodiment practices that basically help us. And some of these are meditation. Some of these involve breathing techniques. Restorative yoga is a huge piece that I incorporate in it with my clients, but so many different ways that you can get at healing the nervous system. But the biggest piece is you got to heal the nervous system so that you can become regulated.
1: Yeah. And so one major takeaway that I feel like any of us could do is take these deep breaths and, and kind of soothe that vagus nerve. Is that a helpful takeaway? A hundred percent.
0: So so deep, so the, the thing that a lot of people get wrong is they do shallow breathing through the chest that doesn't activate the vagus nerve. So a lot of people say, I don't like deep breathing or I don't do it right or I, I get it, I don't understand it. It's probably just because you're not belly breathing. So if you put two hands on the low belly and you take really deep, slow exhal- inhales and exhalation breaths, like you're filling the belly like a balloon, right? And upon the exhalation, you release.
1: I'm doing it right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. It I mean, even
0: like literally, if we just even all of us just stop for a second. And just breathe all the way into the low belly, two hands on the belly, feel the belly start to expand. And as you release the breath, there's almost like an audible ah oh, like a sigh that happens that's good because what can what stimulates the vagus nerve is the release is the sigh so whether it's literally like a deep exhale singing gargling chanting there's so many ways to stimulate the vagus nerve but all of them
1: involve this like deep release as a a karaoke junkie <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm feeling like maybe karaoke is part of my like healing journey. It's super healing. Absolutely. Singing is so healing. Yeah. Totally. Oh my god, this has been such an incredible conversation. Sarah, thank you so so much for coming on. You're welcome. Where can people where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Absolutely. Um so you can check out my
0: website, aboundingcircles.com. I have my affirmation cards on there. I have all different ways that you can access me and work with me. I offer holistic health audit that's totally complimentary, which you can sign up for. You also can join my Facebook group, the Women's Wellness Circle, which is on Facebook. And um, in that I have a mental health book club and I would love for anyone to join. Um, You can access that both on my website or from the Facebook group.
1: Cool. Are you on Insta? I am on Instagram.
0: Um it's at women's wellness circle Hawaii.
1: Great. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at The Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search The Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. They mean so much to me. I literally cried the other day reading some. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, whatever you want. I pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy. So if you're able and moved to, just go to anchor.fm. Forward slash the Patrama party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.